Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to Unheard Ideas. I'm Freddie Thayers. I'm here with David Fuller, founder of Rebel Wisdom, which is one of our favorite YouTube channels, which sadly is coming to the end of its life, but you are continuing to explore the world of heterodox ideas. Mm -hmm. You have been much talked about in the past week because you came out with a long article about Jordan Peterson. Mm -hmm. This is someone who you could almost say was intimately involved with the rise of Rebel Wisdom. You did some early interviews with him and many of your fans came from his kind of world in, in 2017-2018. And you've broken with him, basically. You, you wrote how you're no longer a fan or you no longer think that he is positive contribution to the public debate. Tell us what your argument is. So as you say, I first discovered Jordan Peterson about 2017. I was hugely uh, taken with his thought and still think that what he's saying about mythology, um, the Bible series, the Maps of Meaning lectures are really quite extraordinary contributions and I really value that. Um, and when Rebel Wisdom started, we were talking a lot about kind of the, the spiritual depth of his work, the religious depth of his work, more than the culture war side. And there were always multiple Jordan Petersons. There was the kind of culture warrior, obviously how he became famous through Bill C-16. But there was also a lot of people who came for the controversy, found this incredible depth of thought. And he was incredibly influential, probably became the world's most public, most famous public intellectual in the last five years. And I've described him as like the one man lightning rod for the culture war. So an incredibly significant figure and significant story to understand. And as I said, there were multiple Jordan Petersons and we were really looking mostly at the kind of deeper mythology, the, the deeper tr trends of his thoughts and what he was bringing into the culture, which I still think, as I said, is hugely valuable. And so our audience was really tracking that kind of Jordan, that side of the Jordan Peterson. And what I felt has happened over the last five years, and completely understandably in a way, given there are a lot of unfair attacks on him, he was misrepresented a lot by the media in 2017, 2018. And in a way, it was a kind of filter for free thinkers back then. A lot of the people who found the way to Rebel Wisdom, part of our community, I found they, they weren't the typical young, young lost man as the kind of media 
media mm. kind of narrative would, would say it. There were a lot of people from all different backgrounds. So he was a filter for free thinkers. But what I'd seen over the last five years, and again, it's completely understandable given his health issues, given what's happened to him and many of the unfair attacks, he's become more and more of a polarizing figure. And I argue in the piece that I released that he now resembles the caricature that the worst of the media portrayals made him out to be. And which, what is that? What is that caricature that um, formerly you would have defended him from and now you think is accurate? He he now looks to me like the angry right winger just stoking one side of the culture war without the nuance that I felt he was bringing before. He used to talk about the value of the left and the value of the right. And there was this sense of him, I, I felt he was trying to synthesize. He was bringing this Jungian frame which understands that each kind of archetype has a positive side and a negative side. And there was really deep, nuanced arguments about how each side needs each other. And over time, what I what I found is that he steered more and more into tickling the funny bone of, of, of the right only and much less of a synthesizing figure. And that's not just my view. I've also, because of the, the shared history with, with Jordan Peterson and the documentaries that I put out about him, um, I've also been part of a lot of the Facebook groups that were set up around his thoughts, tracking the Reddit threads, and there's been a real shift in his audience. So that was partly what I was saying, is that there seems to have been a split between the people who are really still into him because of the culture war and just want to see him kind of bashing the left, and the people who, who were into him for the deeper kind of mythology, the, the, the philosophical side of his thought, and many of them have been repelled by a lot of the more recent content that seems much more angry, uh, much more, um, yeah, much less attempt to kind of to to steer a path in the culture war. So you're disappointed by this. You 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 would have hoped that he would have stayed above the frame or or not picked a side in this way. You're, it's a charge that he should answer in some way. He he clearly picked a side, and he clearly believes that he's right to have picked a side. He clearly believes that. The, the situation is, is bad enough that he should pick a side and needs to pick a side. And I, cannot, I can understand why he sees it that way. A lot of other people see it that way as well. But the problem is in picking a side and being so vitriolic, and I, wonder, I mean, I'd, be, I'd advise people to go and have a look at the, the piece that he released after his Twitter ban, which was quite really, really off-putting. The way he was talking about Elliot Page. Okay, so let's actually look at the evidence. So, first of all, he tweeted something that has led to him being banned or suspended unless he deletes the tweet. Let's have a look at it. So, he says, Remember when pride was a sin and Ellen Page just had her breasts removed by a criminal physician? And then he quote tweets a New York Post article about Elliot Page, which is the new name of the actor who is stars in Umbrella Academy and is now... A man. Mm. What's your take on this message? Yeah, so this was kind of the inciting incident for him being uh, suspended from Twitter. I want to make the point that this was sort of the culmination of quite a lot of tweets, um, including one uh, overweight swimwear model, and but this was the one that did get him suspended. After this, he then released a long piece on his YouTube channel about this that I would, I would call more of a rant. Got a little excerpt of it here. And I'm not taking down that tweet or acknowledging that my tweet violated the Twitter rules. Up yours, woke moralists. We'll see who cancels who. 
So here, the first thing that strikes you is mm. the kind of setting. He's now got yep. this very quite well-produced, well-lit black background with, with yep. a kind of halo light effect, mm. pinstripe sort of mobster suit, mysterious button that hopefully yep. one of the commenters will tell us what it stands for. And then he's he's angry. Is yeah. that what you're noticing? He, he's, he's quite fierce. Yeah, I mean, I think the aesthetics are interesting, and I'll talk about that in a moment, but I'm more interested in the, the tone of his discussion of Elliot Ellen Page. The entire, and I, I wonder about playing that clip, and he talked about, the, he defended the criminal physician's statement by saying, well, the, the Nazi doctors, were they criminal or not? Like that kind of language, I just think that's going to appeal to people who are already on his side of the aisle. It's not going to persuade anyone who is not already bought into his 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 argument already. And I don't understand how someone who's a criminal, sorry, who's a clinical psychologist doesn't have some, you, I don't know how you can have this conversation without having some empathy for people who are going through gender dysphoria. Like... If, if you're only going to take a fully combative attitude to this, one of the most difficult topics to talk about in the culture right now, I just don't see how you're going to be able to do that without some, without some nuance, without some compassion, unless you're only trying to appeal to one side of the culture war. It's a very delicate argument to have. And I think, ironically, it's an argument that is, is starting to be won um, as, a, as, a, as a journalist as well. Like, even the New York Times just recently, a couple of weeks ago, had a, an article by, I think, Emily Bazelon, mm. that was the first time that you'd seen the New York Times, which previously had a really blanket kind of ideological position of trans women are women, and that's all there is to say. They had this long article that I think was eight months in the making that finally kind of conceded a lot of the questions that people have been raising for a long time about the ideology, and things are starting to shift. Like, and that's, I think, how things shift in, in the culture, not through just simply stoking one side of the culture war. And I think Peterson at his best and Peterson five years ago would have been more interested in that sort of synthesis or that kind of nuanced argument. And increasingly now, I just see him not being interested in the nuanced argument at all, just kind of pressing the tickling the funny bone of one side of the culture war. And I don't believe he used to be like that. And I don't believe that's that's his fundamental orientation. But I do think, and this is what I'd love to come to later in the conversation is the impact of being of social media and audience capture and all of these dynamics that that warp us and make us into more extreme versions of ourselves which is what we've seen with so many public intellectuals not just Jordan Peterson over the last five years or so like this is something I think mm. so many people from like, without naming any names well let's just, let's name some um, I mean, who, Russell, who else? Russell Brand um, Russell Brand now, if you look at his YouTube channel, it's very clickbaity titles. It's very following the, the YouTube audience. It's much more conspiratorial. It's much more, um, it's perfectly calibrated for a YouTube audience. The nature of audience capture, particularly on YouTube, is that you end up giving the audience what they need. You've got a comments thread that creates the echo chambers, creates the filter bubbles. And I think it has a, a warping effect on creators. I know this myself. I, maybe you do as well as having a YouTube channel on, on you know, the Unheard YouTube channel, it starts to warp, and I feel it in myself, like there are certain topics that I know that I am wary about talking about or talking about in, in a particular way or self-censoring and feeling kind of dragged 
more and more towards what the audience wants and the difficulty in calibrating. I don't think people recognize, I think people realize now with films like The Social Dilemma, how toxic social media can be, how it brings out the worst in us, our narcissism, our tribalism, all of these, all of these issues, because it encourages us to keep coming back if we're involved in an argument and it polarizes and splits society. I don't think people yet realize how impactful that is on creators, on people who are, and now because the institutions are increasingly failing, more and more people are getting their, their news, their opinions, their information from individuals rather than institutions. So the characteristic of those individuals, the psychological flaws of those individuals, the way they communicate, what they say, what they don't say, all of that suddenly is, is relevant. And so we're in, a, we're in a world where suddenly we're in a world of sort of shifting sands and also where we're increasingly seeing a kind of polarizing uh, effect of the audience that makes people into more and more extreme versions of themselves or and I would say that's that's what I think has happened to Jordan Peterson is that he was holding out this more synthesis perspective five years ago and has just steered more and more into what more of the audience wanted which was this, just being a culture warrior just being a culture warrior not attempting to kind of um, yeah not attempting to to communicate beyond his own side would he not say and I should say we have asked him to be here and discuss this with us and hopefully he will would he not say it's not culture warrior or audience capture so much as just realizing what his position is mm. you know from an initial kind of agnostic searching role he increasingly maybe has felt confident what he believes to be closest to the truth mm. and therefore thinks it's virtuous and necessary mm. to fight that battle yeah i mean what's wrong with that if that's what he would say yeah, and I imagine he would also say you don't realize things are really much more urgent than they were five years ago, and that's why I'm responding to it. Don't you realize what's going on in Canada now with the creeping authoritarianism, all of these issues? And of course, there's going to be different views on this depending on where you are. I'm based in the UK. I've got a different experience than, than he does being in Canada. But I just don't see how you're going to, even if you believe that these are the most important issues in the world, I don't know how you think you're going to persuade anyone without, with, with, with basically yelling at them. Like, how, how has that ever worked in an argument when you're talking to someone, when you're not trying to kind of at least understand where they're coming from, argue in a way where you can find some common ground? This, this, this is, I just don't see, even if you think this is the most important issue in the world, I don't think bringing that into your delivery and 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 intensely kind of yelling at people is the way to do it. And I, I think back in the day before he was consumed by this culture war dynamic, and again, like I have huge empathy for and admiration for Jordan Peterson for what he brought back in 2017. And I understand, I mean, it, he, as I said, the one man lightning rod for the culture war, you can't go through what he's gone through without without having that having some effect so it, it's and it feels uncomfortable talking about him because he's a he's a real person I've, I've only met him twice uh, I was in contact um, because of the the two documentaries that I that I did and the amazing coincidence that he was on Channel 4 News where I used to work for 10 years and then rose to fame with the interview with Kathy Newman so there's kind of a real shared history um, and I feel as uncomfortable talking about him because he's a real, he's a, he's a person. He's a person I've met. 
He's a person everyone has sympathy for because he's been so open about his struggles and his story. And that's part of what people identify with it is that he's a real but he's, person. He's falling short, you feel like. It's, fair it's to not say. for me to judge whether he's falling short. All I can say is like my experience and what I've seen with the, the different groups of people who've been tracking his trajectory, I would say universal, the universal response to the article that I put out from the people that I re respect, recognize, and have connected with over the trajectory of Jordan Peterson has been, thank you for saying this. Mm. No one's saying it because he's now such a kingmaker, because he's now got this so much, so much power, because the nature of the alternative media is this kind of invisible hierarchy of status where people are hopeful that they might get him on their podcast or they'll be on his podcast. People don't the alternative media people don't speak out they there's, there's not there's so many corrupting factors in the alternative media there's so many corrupting facts in the mainstream media as well like this is one of the reasons that jordan peterson has been successful rebel wisdom has been successful unheard has been successful is that there is the media became corrupt and became a kind of um, parody of truth seeking but there's real problems in the alternative as well mm -hmm. i want to I, just... I want to come on to the yeah. whole question of the alternative media and, yeah. and whether that can be fixed but just to finish on Jordan Peterson, we actually had Dave Rubin on this show, and I was asking very similar questions to what you're saying. I said, mm. well, you know, you used to be this sort of open-minded, intellectual dark web character, and now I think he would and did openly say he's very much a conservative. He has a very clear view of the world, and he's fighting to win. And he said that. He said, basically, that he's given up on the existing institutions as being fair arbiters for these sort of struggles. And he thinks whole new institutions need to be created. And there reaches a point, and I think maybe Jordan Peterson has got to a similar place, where it becomes about winning. And he, they think that the contribution they can make is bigger and more impactful to be fighters on one side. I mean, I guess I have to ask, what's wrong with that? Maybe that is true. Maybe mm. it might, uh, you know, you might be sad because the kind of, you know, lofty mm. sort of liberal minded character is no more, but maybe he is more useful to the world as a combative member of one side. I don't think that's true. I mean, you look at, I understand why, I mean, Dave Rubin is another good example, but Dave Rubin, as far as I can tell in, has kind of vanished from the conversation by picking a side I don't see him being particularly influential anymore. He's just talking to a very small echo chamber of people on on his side of the aisle. I don't see, like Dave Rubin, where is he now? Like he's not part of the conversation. Jordan Peterson was. Um, and I, under, I understand why they've, if that's where Jordan Peterson has ended up, I've not heard him say that explicitly. For a long time back in 20. 17, 2018, he was being framed as being a right winger, and he would say, I'm not a right winger. I'm not a, he, he's, he's on record as saying, I'm being framed as a right winger, and I'm, I'm not. I'm genuinely trying to express things that are not part of the conversation. If he has decided, right, there's all, all that we can do now is, is fight, I, I, don't think that, I don't think that works. I don't think that's how you persuade people. I guess I still have a, a faith that. Um, that there is still an opportunity for, for dialogue, and I don't see that happening. So I wonder whether this is actually a symptom of, as you call them, incentive structures, audience mm. capture, features of the new media ecosystem, social media, mm. feedback loops, etc., or whether it's just a human reality. And maybe it was always like that. Um, 
we are built to form groups. In fact, I'm sure Jordan Peterson would agree with that. And it's very deep in our way of thinking. And that's how we're at our best in some ways. You need to be surrounded by people who, to some degree, reflect back what you think and that you can kind of grow together with some kind of coherence. And you form tribes, you form groups of thinkers or warriors or whatever they are. And that's how human beings have always progressed. So maybe the kind of liberal or the, the, the person who floats above it trying to understand all sides mm. is actually quite an unnatural, hard position to sustain for very long mm. because it's quite inhuman. And eventually it becomes too exhausting mm. and you feel like there's something more flowing and profound about sort of picking a team. Mm. Maybe it's not social media. Maybe it's just human beings. But I would say the two things are not mutually exclusive. It is human beings. It is psychology. The nature of social media is that Silicon Valley has got these incredibly sophisticated tools to mine our psychology and to prey on our tribalism, to magnify our tribalism. The issue is that we are effective in groups of mixed temperament and mixed ability. That's the, the idea. Tribalism is actually a, an existential threat because it's splitting us off into camps of different of perspectives rather than allowing us to come together. That's why we have the different temperaments, which is again something in a way I took from Jordan Peterson, was that by those different temperaments, those different abilities were um, on the left to be more open, on the conservative side to be more um, disciplined, more conscientious. We, are, we have to come together in groups of these mixed temperaments. What we're seeing is increased polarization, increased fragmentation by social media, mining our innate biases and fragmenting us off into groups where I think we become ineffective. And, and society itself, I think, is breaking down, particularly in America. I think we're in a different position here in the UK and I have more hope. I think there is a civil space in the UK outside the culture war, outside the sense of politicization and fragmentation. In America, I don't think there is. I think America is in a very dark place. And I just see stuff like this as, as adding to it, as fueling it. And I don't see the kind of, Peterson used to talk a lot about like the danger of dehumanizing language, the danger of um, these unexamined kind of disgust. And yet I'm picking up a huge amount of disgust, a huge amount of borderline dehumanizing language and a lot of what he's putting out at the moment. And I don't see, he has said before, I don't know how you resolve those kind of divisions in anything short of conflict. And I think he's fueling one side of the conflict. I think that's effectively, if he's decided that's what needs to happen, what, he's decided that actually he and Dave Rubin decided that what's required is actually a civil war or, or, or actually a, or, 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 or just to, to win the culture war? Isn't politics sort of agonistic or combative by nature? And ultimately, one group needs to win the argument. The, it's a... The idea that everything is always a compromise between all groups thinking differently has never really been true. Mm. Maybe, yeah, maybe that's what they're doing. They, they, they plan to win. They don't plan to persuade. They plan to win. Mm. I'm not, I can't speak for them. But is that a frightening thought, do you think? Um, again, it's understandable. And everything that I'm seeing and you're saying is looks like that's the decision that he's made. It's, it's a decision I'm disappointed that he's made and one that I didn't, that I think a lot of, yeah, a lot of the people that I uh, have been 
a lot of the people who've been following him and I've been tracking in these various groups, I think, thought that he was up to something different. They thought he wasn't just a, a culture warrior. Um, if, he, if that's the, the role that he's now fully embraced, then that is, yeah, I, I do find that disappointing. Let's talk about the alternative media or heterodox media. You're shutting down Rebel Wisdom. Is that in some way an expression of disappointment at the state of alternative media? I mean, what should we be doing that we're not? Um, it's not solely because of that. The, it's partly because I feel like the narrative arc that I was following on the media channel with Rebel Wisdom is complete. Um, I, I don't really know where to go. I've got a, quite a few things that I'm putting out. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Between now and the end of the, the project in November, but... I feel like the narrative art that I was tracking around things like existential risk, um, personal growth, and and kind of heterodox thought is complete. And also, I have I do feel like the heterodox space itself became very warped, especially during COVID. I've talked about the alternative media, this kind of concept of the uncanny valley between the mainstream and the alternative. We've got a mainstream that is not open to enough voices. It's trying to gatekeep the conversation and it doesn't include enough voices. And then you've got the alternative, which will platform a lot of those alternative voices, but there's no incentive to challenge them. So particularly during COVID, you had, because a lot of this became very heated, very weaponized, because 
the information landscape or information around COVID was now had huge health implications. The mainstream not including enough perspectives, as as you know from some of the pro some of the problems that you have with unheard. But the alternative rarely had any incentive to challenge the people that they were bringing on. Um, controversial figures like Robert Malone, I've never seen him in in conversation with a medical figure who's equipped to challenge his perspective. Other other kind of people who became very, very prominent, very successful because of the narrative that they were kind of pushing. Who, who are you thinking about? Um, Robert Malone, Peter McCullough, um, some of the, the figures who, there was a whole controversy over, over Joe Rogan when Joe Rogan hosted those, those voices. And it ended up being an attempt to kind of cancel Joe Rogan and there was the, the whole kind of racism thing, which I think so, was very cynical. But, but that simple fact of, Joe Rogan hosting these voices, he's not equipped to challenge them. But then who is equipped to challenge them? Where is a place that's equipped to kind of to I don't think it's enough just to host these voices and not take any responsibility for the information that they're putting out. So I think you have there has to be some. We talked about kind of the lack of institutions. There has to be some kind of new institutions where we are challenging some of these voices. At the moment, the mainstream is just saying we're not going to touch this. But once people get to a certain level of prominence, I think there's an, a, there has to be a, a need to kind of interrogate the truth of their claims. And I don't see anywhere that's trying to do that, not in the alternative, not in the mainstream. And, and I don't see... We, that's I, think, a, I mean, not to you know, blow on herds trumpet here, but we definitely have been trying. Yeah. I mean, there is an editorial judgment you need to make on yeah. who you're going to invite onto your show, definitely. Yeah. And there were lots of people who lots of people suggested we should have on mm. during COVID and we didn't. And some of those people have become very prominent since. And, you know, you make a judgment at the time. Yeah. I feel ultimately that you, you, the audience trusts the host or the editor to make mm. those decisions. And they might be wrong. They might be right. But if someone else like Joe Rogan or mm. Brett Weinstein or anyone else comes to a different view, I'm happy to disagree with it, but I wouldn't, I don't think, ban it. I wouldn't, no. and I wouldn't necessarily even judge them too harshly for having come to a different point of view. I think that's the whole idea that you, you should be allowed different mm. people's judgment and the you know, audience will flow to whoever they think ultimately comes closest to the truth. Yeah, I'm more concerned with whether people are for example, if you're hosting people from both sides of the argument, uh, you mentioned Brett Weinstein. I had a quite um, difficult experience because Brett was a was a friend, and I disagreed mainly with the fact that he wouldn't host anyone from the counterpoint. He was hosting people like Robert Malone. He was ho asking questions about ivermectin and making very strong statements about ivermectin, like it was a 100% effective prophylactic against COVID. At very important times during the pandemic, he went on Joe Rogan with Pierre Corey, and they made a lot of statements about the effectiveness of ivermectin that I think have proven not to be the case. Now people are saying, well, maybe it has a small effect here or there, and there's an I argument. Think he would but, take it if he was here, which he was recently. He'd yeah, probably. Would he still say it was 100% effective at, at preventing COVID? You would have to ask him. Yeah, um, but he has not still to this day hosted anyone on his program. A medical voice is equipped to challenge his claims around ivermectin or, or vaccines. I, I don't think, for me, that's not ethical truth-seeking. And 
I know Joe Rogan wrestles with that and does have people try to have people from 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 both sides to to a greater degree. But yeah, I mean, and people will make their judgments over the um, the actions of the people who are making the decisions in the alternative media space. But what I'm pointing at is there's no incentive for anyone in the alternative media space to host people from the other side. Their audience don't like it. There's there's no reason to, to ask them difficult questions. That means they might not come back on. You've got all of these kind of warping effects of the alternative media. I'm thinking through what you're saying, and I know exactly what you mean, and I, I understand the attraction of this kind of impartial figure or someone who was constantly open to the other side I suppose in reality, I'm not sure it's about the corruption or audience capture so much, but people do become known for more one side than the other. And at that point, perhaps they feel that their contribution is to correct the overall discussion space by bringing a particular point of view to the table. Um, you know, if, for example, the mainstream media, every BBC, CNBC, any channel in the US are showing the same experts mm. time and time again, and they're just everywhere. What is the merit of bringing mm. those people on? They probably won't come anyway. And if they do, you're then going to have a, a, some sort of discussion with them that might not go that well. Is that a realistic thing to ask, I wonder, of and the kind of alternative media space that they present themselves BBC-like or you know, in some kind of theoretical impartiality, which of course is never possible anyway. Or maybe it's just more realistic to say, and as I keep saying, more human, to say that as long as people are kind of transparent about their vantage point, that's actually a more real way to conduct a public conversation where guests, hosts, editors are all known to come from somewhere because everyone has a view we know that from every bbc journalist we see on their twitter profile what they really think half the time and maybe that's a more honest way to have the discussion than this pretense at impartiality mm. what do you say to that yeah i think it's true that the the mainstream was always a pretense at impartiality i think the rise of the alternative media has kind of shown up that the kind of view from nowhere affectation of the mainstream was always an affectation. I think that's really healthy. It's kind of shown up that there was a, if you were talking about the MSM, which I think is a oversimplification, but there's some truth in it, um, that there was a kind of narrowness of the conversation. The fact that the alternative media has kind of expanded the types of views and types of perspectives you can find is fantastic. But what I fear is that we're all just getting siloed more and more in bubbles of mutual incomprehension. And that has an effect on the, the creators, the creators, I think, get trapped in a particular perspective and they then start not not seeking to, to, to grow, to learn, to kind of improve their understanding and then improving the understanding of the people who are, who are following them. I feel that we're, we're just trapped in kind of ever-decreasing circles because that's what the audience wants, that's what the, the algorithms reward. And I think ultimately that's a really dangerous, dangerous thing because... If you don't have, we're literally in a situation now where we don't, not we don't understand each other. We don't even understand how people can think the way that they think. We're in mutual incomprehension, and I don't see, I don't see how a society survives with this level of fragmentation, this level of mutual incomprehension. And I, I think it's, I think it's worse 
as I said, I think it's probably worse in America. My experience is that the conversation is so much more polarized, more fragmented there than it than it is here. But I just I see it as a as a fundamental problem because how do you have collective action to solve? We've got huge problems as as a society, as as a culture. And if we can't come to any agreement on what those problems are, and we can't even have discussions with each other about what those problems are, I think that's a really, really dangerous thing for the future of any kind of common purpose, whether that's democracy or post-liberal or whatever. I think that deep fragmentation into kind of echo chambers and, as I said, mutual incomprehension is a civilizational threat. And there's, there's stuff we've got to look at, there's stuff we've got to kind of to, to do and to, to tackle. Do you think, if we're really going to zoom out and go big picture, do you think it is a sign of a kind of major global civilizational decline in some way? Do you think you and I are living on the kind of downslope of civilization? If it, go, if it goes in waves, we're on a receding one. Do you think that's the truth? I've spent the last five years with Rebel Wisdom sort of tracking some of the most interesting, intelligent thinkers around um, people like Daniel Schmachtenberger, Jamie Wheel, um, and, and, and universally I, they are talking about very, very serious problems, um, talking, yeah, kind of existential risk dynamics and they can list like 12 different existential risks that are really pressing and we don't know how to deal with. So yes, I think that everything that I've been tracking suggests that we are in kind of post-liberal times and probably, um, yeah, in the kind of, things are, things are getting serious at the very least. So do you um, think there's anything that And I, and I think, I think part of it is is this exponential tech. I think exponential tech is at the core of this. Um, Daniel Schmachtenberger, who I mentioned before, talks about the generator functions. And it's partly the game theory, the, the drivers, the generator functions that are driving tech. The, the fact that there's a race to the bottom of the brainstem in, in tech, that it's trying to kind of trigger us. The fact that it's kind of on a they're all in a, a fight with each other to kind of maximize attention, which means that they end up polarizing. They're preying on the worst aspects of our personalities. So in a way, I feel like we've exploited the, the world as much as we can. Now there's, we're kind of exploiting the inner world as much as we can. And there's a kind of, um, so, so in a way, like our, our own psychology has been weaponized against us by, by the tech platforms and all of our kind of most destructive patterns, narcissism, kind of tribalism, is, is being exploited and exa exacerbated by all of this. Jonathan Haidt had a beautiful explanation uh, in a conversation with Sam Harris. Jonathan Haidt, the author of The Righteous Mind, said, imagine that you change the law of gravity. What would happen if you change the law of gravity? You'd find planes falling out of the sky. So many things would change downstream from that and you'd be in a completely different world. He says, we did something in around 2013, 2014 with social media that effectively changed the gravity of our social interactions. The nature of social media changed the gravity, changed how salient or important it all felt, changed how um, intense everything was in the feedback that we're getting from our, our phones, so it changed the nature of the conversation in the social realm. So everything feels much more 
intense all the time. And that has had huge effects downstream. The, the availability of that information and the fact that it's preying on our kind of worst aspects. And yeah, so I do think that that's an existential danger, but it's, it's not the only one. Let me try and make an alternative diagnosis, which I might, might or might not manage to do. A lot of what you're saying, and it's, it, you, thinkers like Jonathan Haidt do the same, wraps up these changes together with social media and new technology, and it's all a very new, very contemporary phenomenon. I think what you're talking about, which I agree with, is that there's an actual fragmentation of epistemology, of mm. theory of knowledge, so that people are moving into camps that are so far removed from each other, they can't even agree on the terms of discussion. Mm. So there is no chance of compromise. And I think that is happening. But maybe that is the normal state of affairs. If we were living in ancient Greece, where we may or may not have joined the you know, Trojan army or the or been part of Achilles' troop or Agamemnon's troop or whatever, there was no unified liberal set of principles that we should be striving to. There were different tribes and different groups trying to win. And that's basically been human history until about 300 years ago with the Enlightenment. And since then, there's been this sense of, hey, we can all be one world with a single set of principles and a single theory of knowledge. Perhaps that was the anomaly and that was the innovation. And maybe that's just not a sustainable set of affairs. Maybe we are going to return to a kind of post-enlightenment zone where maybe people feel more comfortable, not feeling that they all have to sign up to a single set of principles, a single version of science, official version of what is true and what isn't true. Maybe people prefer to be able to pick their team, pick their religion, and live in a world that they feel comfortable with, even if it's very different and possibly, you know, at odds with other groups. Do you think that might be true? Do you think we might, there's, there may be a kind of positive aspect in some way to this destruction? Maybe the, the world we're moving into isn't so much a new dystopia created by technology. Maybe it's just a more normal human world that actually people are going to feel more human in. Not sure I understand your analogy because, like 300 years ago, we still had the nation state. Nation states were going to war, still do go to war. So it's it's not like that we had one society that was all kind of united around a set of common values. It was very different values in the different countries. So, in a but way, been, are you talking about kind of the end of the nation state, or I'm talking about the invention since the, the Western powers colonized the rest of the world since the Enlightenment philosophers gave this idea of, of a kind of certain truth that could be accessed through the scientific method, all of the foundation underpinnings of the modern world, the, the globalized world, the secular world. And it does feel like that was very much a period. It was a phase that had its high points, maybe in the second half of the 20th century. And now both in a geopolitical sense, that's clearly breaking up into smaller worlds, but also philosophically, even within countries such as the US, like you talk about, people no longer agree on the terms of play. 
And I just wonder whether there's any optimism in that or whether it's just a bleak disintegration into some kind of dark times. Can you, can you, can you join me in trying to find some positivity here? Yeah, I definitely agree we're at the end. We're kind of clearly everyone's senses are at the end of a worldview. We're at the end of a kind of way of understanding the world, a way of being in the world. I definitely think we're also in post-secular times. And that was one of the reasons I was really drawn to Jordan Peterson was that I felt he was articulating the religion in a way, in a kind of very secular world, in a way that felt defendable, felt kind of like was able to go toe-to-toe with the new atheists. There was So I do think we're in sort of post-secular times. And in a way, we're seeing religions or the religious fervor going into different areas, like we're seeing it in politics. We're seeing kind of new religions in so many different different kind of new manifestations. And also the return of the irrational as symbolized by something like the, the Q shaman in the Senate, like that that vision of like the irrational howling to the heathen gods in the middle of kind of the American empire, I think is, so we're, we're definitely in a weird, new, strange world. And I, I think that's exciting. That feels quite exciting as someone who's always been interested in the irrational, um, the archetypal, the Jungian, like all of this sort of, and I do think we're in a time where we need to go through like deep, again, a Jungian frame, the collective shadows, I think are now leaking out all around us, partly because of the alternative media, all of these people, all of these things now have a voice. So as a culture, I feel like we're gonna have to do some kind of cultural shadow work or cultural processing all of, of all of this, for sure. Whether that means that we'll split up into different groups where we feel more comfortable and maybe that's a positive vision for for the future. I don't, I think getting to that point is probably going to be quite messy. Um, and, but it, I mean, there's a lot of people now theorizing about whether we're at the end of the nation state or not. Um, far smarter people than me, so I won't, I won't guess along that. But I do, I, I am excited in a way because it does, it, it does feel like there's a, there's an opportunity for a new worldview now, which I think I, I personally find the kind of the secular rationalist, materialist, reductionist, new atheist perspective so deadening and boring and um, yeah, just not really in tune with what it means to be a human being. And 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 so I I like like I, I welcome the fact that it feels that we're at the end of that, but I think we can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. We need to keep science. We need to keep all of the, um, the the incredible systems and the incredible systems of knowledge that we've created. So it's it's transcending and including rather than losing all of that. So we've painted maybe a bleak, maybe a hopeful, but certainly a picture of major change and that we're at a very, very interesting civilizational moment. What do you think, if anything, we can do as individuals to try and improve the overall outcome or play our part in it? Um, I feel like the the answer has to be, because we're being so, we talked a lot about the tech platforms and how they're kind of weaponizing our psychology against us. And that's only one factor, but the world's getting more and more intense. It's getting more and more confusing, more and more overwhelming. I feel like the answer has to be to come back to our own, to really upgrade our own capacities with mindfulness, with more practice. One of the thinkers in, in Jordan Peterson's 
um, department, uh, a guy called John Bavaki, who I'm making a documentary with at the moment, he really focuses on the nature of self-deception, how we deceive ourselves and how we're deceived by the culture and the need for practice, for more embodiment practice. And my so that means meditation and mindfulness and those that's what what does practice mean if you don't yeah sort of different self-development um techniques we i mean this, this is kind of what the rebel wisdom project has always been about it's been about the ideas and the philosophies and the psychologies but also the different practices from breath work to meditation to kind of self-reflection to journaling to all of these different practices Prayer. interesting one we haven't work with that but i think prayer is a really valuable i think prayer is a really valuable the og it's the original practice isn't it? yeah it's a psycho what psychotechnology is what john bavaki would call it and what prayer does is, is is it it's an ego deflation thing it's sort of saying rather than try it's it's admitting we don't know and looking for answers so that humility practice is really valuable so i think when i talked about post-secular i feel like we need to reintegrate what was religion doing for us as a as a culture and what have we lost by losing religion and i think bringing those in in a new way so secular versions of some of the practices that that religions had to to allow us to kind of um help ourselves individually and help ourselves socially though that's really the cutting edge i think is what goes in the hole left by religion what were the practices that religion developed to help us thrive as as individuals as a society how do we reintegrate those and yeah how how do we how do we grow to 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 counter the way that we're being manipulated increasingly how do we develop our own capacities individually culturally and as a society david fuller thank you freddie thank you that was david fuller the founder of rebel wisdom which is a youtube channel that explores some similar themes to us but is sadly entering its final months the conversation will, of course, carry on here at Unheard. David was an original supporter, a big supporter of the Canadian thinker Jordan Peterson. Now, as you heard, he's not so sure whether he is for the good or not. But it feels a little bit odd to discuss someone who's not in the room. Um, hopefully it was a fair discussion. And if you are watching Jordan, we would be delighted to have you on next time and we could talk about the same things with you in person. Thanks for tuning in. This was Unheard Ideas. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.